You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on February 3rd, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Business and Innovation Q&A. I said I would talk about things um, that I might know about uh, business doing and innovation. So we had a bunch of questions left over from uh, last time. There was a, a question from Tom here that was, I think, particularly topical last time we did this about the GameStop saga. And um, uh, well, I might make a few comments about that. I mean, I, I, I suppose I can comment on, uh, we're talking about business and innovation and so on. And um, at any given time, there's always the, you know, what are the smartest business people going into? And, you know, one feature of doing business is, you know, there are different motivations for doing business. One motivation is you want to make them as much money as possible. Another motivation might be uh, you want to create things that are as much value for the world. Another thing is you might want to um, have uh, uh, do things that you yourself find the most interesting and so on. There are a bunch of different motivations, uh, particularly in motivations that are, that are sort of uh, make the most money. The closer you are to the money, the easier it is to make money typically. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always uh, interested that people who are involved in sort of the, the, the brokering of money, the transferring of money, all these kinds of things, you know, you, you just take your, you know, small percentage and you are sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's a way, you know, money is the story, so to speak. And I think one of the things that's interesting about the finance, uh, sort of the, the, the world of uh, sort of financial innovation uh, which is usually, you know, hedge fund is the is the generic term used usually. I suppose it's the, you know, day traders on the amateur side, hedge funds on the professional side. And that's, in a sense, the GameStop thing is a, is a competition between those two. But it's sort of interesting to see, you know, who are the people who've been doing sort of the financial innovation at any given time? Who are the people who are doing sort of the leading edge trading and all those sorts of things? And And, you know, in the past, up until probably sometime in the 1980s, I think the, the predominant thing was, it was people with a random distribution of educations who would become you know, traders in the you know, Chicago, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, the, the commodities exchange or whatever else. So they would be, you know, they'd be floor traders. They'd be, you know, spend their days. I, I remember once visiting with one of my kids actually a long time ago, once visiting the um, uh, Chicago, um, uh, what is it? Commodities exchange. What's it called? Um, but in any case, it was. It's just such a strange thing to see these people in in suits. They're you know they're in some pit trading something. They're dead still, and then something you can't tell happens, and all these people are uh, you know jumping up and down and waving around and you know making hand signals and so on. Of course, that's all gone away. It's all electronic now. But um, the 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 question was you know what what was necessary to be successful in that kind of kind of business. And it was interesting because it was an area where there's just a complete spectrum of different backgrounds from people who had very fancy educations to people who, you know, bailed out of education very early. It was just a particular turn of mind that, um, uh, that let people be successful in the area. 
And it sort of reminds me a little bit of some of the early cryptocurrency world of, of again, although though that had a different kind of um, a different piece that was necessary for people to be involved in it, which was a certain degree of, of technical sophistication. But um, although in, in some parts, at least. But then, then sort of what happened in the 80s was this whole area of quant finance. Uh, it was really a consequence of things like the Black-Scholes model and its, you know, its comparative success or its, its at least perceived success in the, in the, in the least sort of academic economics world and so on. And, um, and then you know, it started to be the case that uh, you know, that was a great destination for physicists in particular. Physicists were the number one. I, I, I know a bunch of the people who were sort of the early cohort of people who transitioned from being physicists to being quant finance people. And it got very kind of, uh, it got very technical and very kind of sophisticated, you know, can you figure out and, and every different company, and I'm happy to say they, they, they pretty much all use um, at least some amount of, of our technology, I think. Um, and uh, they, they all have their own kind of sort of secret methodology that's based on, you know, could have been early machine learning, could have been ge geometric optimization, could have been, you know, classical regression, could have been all kinds of things. Uh, mostly it's, it's like people who work for, uh, you know, the defense department, it's like you don't really ask questions about what in detail they do because it's, it's deeply secret to each of these companies. And, and they tend to build out this very separate, um, uh, you know, technology stacks, but they're very technically sophisticated. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like mostly hiring PhDs and, and things like this. And what I think is interesting is, um, uh, you know, to me, uh, well, another thing to realize about that business is that I think, um, uh, you know, a lot of details matter. Like for some of these things, it's like, is that holiday two years from now going to land on a Tuesday or is it going to land on a weekend? You know, that's going to affect the, the payment of some particular, uh, you know, loan that um, gets paid only on weekdays or, or some such other thing. And those things start mattering. And there's, there's a lot of detail as there is in almost every field that it's not all just, oh, let me be very clever. Um, it's, it's, you know, there's lots of details to follow through on. But I think you know one of the things that's that's an interesting question is is to what extent a field like that consumerizes to what level? How sophisticated technically do you have to be to be successful in, in one of these 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 things? And and what's happened right now is that uh, or in areas like high frequency trading and some of these other kinds of areas, the, the level of both technical sophistication. There are three things I think: technical sophistication, kind of access to data and ability to execute and, and having the amounts of money of, at a scale where it makes sense to do certain kinds of things. Does it make sense to have your own fiber optic cable? Does it make sense to have your own satellites? Um, you know, there's a scale of money at which that makes sense. And it obviously doesn't make sense below those scales of money. So those are, those are things that kind of give, give sort of a, a fundamental advantage to one group over another. But sort of, I think an interesting question is, to what extent is this a, a thing that more people can enter? And to what extent is it you only enter through, uh, through these sort of channels that are, that are already very well developed? and where it's sort of everybody going to sort of the fanciest schools and getting the fanciest degrees. I mean, I think that there came a time, oh, sometime in the 1990s, I suppose, when, when people started getting degrees in financial engineering. It's always interesting when you see a field that goes through from, from you know, the field doesn't exist to the, you know, people who come into the field have to come from outside the field because there's no sort of indigenous training in the field. That's what was happening when physicists were jumping into quantitative finance to there's indigenous training and most people in the field are sort of fully certified in the field. 
Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think that the, um, uh, it's always interesting. I mean, in, in, you know, the area of things to do with money is always an area where things are being innovated, whether that's in sort of, you know, elaborate derivative instruments that, um, uh, you know, elaborate financial instruments that are, you know, the, the derivative of the weather future of the this of the that, whatever. Um, I mean, I, I was used to think of it a little bit like biological evolution that, um, you know, there's, a, there's an ecosystem out there of um, there, there's sort of an environment out there and you're, you're, you're steadily making these financial instruments that are, that are taking advantage of the, of the environment in, in, in this or that different way. Um, and uh, I suppose the, um, uh, yeah, an interesting question is to what extent kind of uh, uh, there, there should be a, a kind of a, a um, save the environment type, um, uh, type principle for those financial instruments because some of them may wreck the environment. Uh, just as can happen in, in um, uh, you know, in, in um, uh, you know, an invasive species or something. It's the same same type of thing. So I, I don't know how to think about that necessarily, but I, I think that the um, the, the way that uh, uh, you know, I suppose from a one of the things I, I find interesting, I you know, uh, is there are lots of very smart people who go into sort of high end quantitative finance. Um, it may be a place where the smartest win probably still is. Um, uh, the smart people who aren't necessarily coming through the, the you know, the traditional education tracks, and uh, you know, who, they, by what does it mean the smart people thing? Does that mean they have a PhD in astrophysics, or just uh, just mean they're able to figure out a bunch of stuff really well, but they don't have that PhD in astrophysics? It's sort of a question of of who's going to be the winner in those spaces. Um, and I think that may be something that um, one may see some changes in. But, but it's also interesting to see these 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 innovations in. Um, uh, well, I, actually, to, to, to say something else about this, I you know back in the early 1990s, I thought about oh, should I play around and um, you know do some kind of hedge fundy type thing? And I was in the middle of working on my big uh, big basic science project. And I thought, you know, maybe I should take, you know, a few months off and try and build something, some sort of financial engineering adventure. And I eventually decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I just, it's not, I'm not that interested in it. It's, um, there are some interesting puzzle problem solving problems there, but I don't think that the end result, it's like, yes, I might make more money, but I don't really care. And, um, uh, you know, it, it didn't seem to me personally, it didn't seem like a fulfilling activity. Um, and I think, um, uh, but, but anyway, back, back to a different thing. I mean, in, in terms of innovation in these kinds of areas, it's always interesting to see, you know, at any given time, there's a cycle of innovation and in, for example, raising money for things. It's like, oh, you can, you know, venture capital. Okay, that was a thing, you know, when I started my first company, um, 1981 or so, you know, venture capital for tech was a, was a fairly new thing. Um, and you know there were certain sort of ideas about how it worked, and it, it wasn't as standardized as it is today. And then, you know, later on there was, uh, oh, you know, whether it's crowdfunding or ICOs or each one of these things. And usually these things go through a cycle. You know, at the beginning, it's like um, uh, nobody really knows what the rules are, and um, you kind of are making a bunch of stuff up for yourself, and it may be quite difficult to figure out how you do it because all kinds of things could go wrong that weren't expected because just it isn't a well well understood track. And then eventually it gets to the point where, you know, the, the late stage is, oh, everybody knows exactly how that works. And um, 
uh, and there's no kind of particular sizzle to um, uh, like, oh, this is a new way to, you know, for investors to, to be able to participate in this or that thing. All right, let's see. There's questions here about what's the most innovative prototype that I've seen that surprised you that didn't make it to the market or failed and why? Ah, uh, well, I'll tell you an example, okay? This is one of these like silly, funny stories. So years ago, this must be early 1990s, my wife and I were, were building some, building out some piece of some house. No, I, yeah, I guess it was, and there's a question of, okay, we're gonna have this place, we're gonna put a television. Okay, so uh, it's like, uh, it's like it really will be convenient if it didn't have to be that deep. So I'm saying, don't worry, you know, you a four inch deep thing is gonna be just fine. They're gonna be, you know, there are flat screen televisions that will fit in that, in that space. And uh, my wife is fond of pointing out to me that that was, I think that must've been 1990, maybe 1992 or something. And um, uh, it's like, well, there weren't flat screen televisions for a very long time. I mean, now, of course, no problem. But that was uh, at least a 25-year, uh, you know, wrong prediction. And, and why did why was that? Well, you know, I had seen flat screen televisions. What I didn't know is that if you make a television, you know, every pixel has to work. It's no good having a, a television where you know most pixels work, but there's a pixel that's just dead in the middle of the screen. It turns out the yields in making those televisions, you could make a prototype, but you couldn't make a production model. So that was an example of where it was hard to know. I mean, you know, it was like, yes, of course, they're going to be flat screen televisions. You know, I understand they're LCDs and, you know, OLEDs now, but, but um, back then it was LCD displays and you could make them and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it took 20 years or something before it went from sort of, yes, you can make enough to make a, a demo to you can really make a, a real thing. But in terms of, of products, oh my gosh, I mean, the, the, the history of, Another famous one is fax machines. So there were fax machines back a hundred years, more than a hundred years ago. And um, it, it just took a really long time for the sort of ambient technology to get to the point where it was possible to make a fax machine. Another one is drones. Drones, you know, between battery technology and the control systems, they, they just wasn't, the, the ambient technology hadn't reached the right point to, to be able to execute that in a, in a good way. And I mean, one sees that, you know, augmented reality, same story. You know, I saw virtual reality stuff in the probably 1989-ish type timeframe, maybe 1990. And it's like, uh, uh, you know, and, and some early augmented reality stuff as well. And it's like, you know, uh, you know, if eventually this will make it, but the ambient technology has to get to the point where, where it's, it's, it's really doable um, before it's, it's going to catch on. And I think, um, uh, you know, I remember when the web was young. Okay, so this is a, a story against myself, um, as, as, as often. You know, I had seen, you know, when I first saw the web, it's like, oh, okay, another thing like that. Because, you know, I'd been using the internet for years um, in, in a variety of forms, the ARPANET and then the internet. And then there were things like Gopher and Waste and so on that were these different ways of kind of accessing uh, you know, sites on the internet. Um, and, you know, the web comes along, it's like, okay, another one of these. And it's like, I was like, oh, it's another read-only system. You know, when, when you finally are able to have something where you can read and write, then it's going to be interesting. 
Well, I got it wrong because the web, of course, did take off. And um, I mean, it, it didn't take me too long to realize that was happening. And it was partly because of the idea of GIFs and the idea that, that you know, you could have a, um, uh, images in websites. It wasn't just text. These other systems were mostly text. Um, you know, I really thought at the beginning, I thought there were two things the web really needed. It needed, you know, both readable and writable things on, on websites, and it needed a micropayment infrastructure, some way in which, you know, people could put wonderful things on the web and get paid for it. The fact that, you know, we're, we're you know, we finally sort of kind of maybe have, uh, certainly in, in our cloud, we have, and other people have this too, you know, writable web pages, so to speak. Um, you know, obviously that has come, although it turned out not to be nearly as important as I thought. Um, micropayments, yeah, not really, no, not, not in a, you know, that really didn't come. And, and the monetization of the web was something I didn't expect at all to work, which is the whole advertising idea. Um, I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, when Google was young and I, you know, knew one of the founders of it because he'd been an intern at our company, it's Sergey Brin. Um, and, uh, uh, it was like, you know, I can't believe this is actually going to work. I'm not sure they did either. You know, it was like they had a bunch of early business models and it wasn't, wasn't clear. You know, you put up this thing. It's a cool idea to have a good search engine. And there were interesting ideas about how to make it, make it really be a good search engine. There have been other search engines before. There was one called AltaVista, which was, um, came out of the DEC research labs. Um, I remember the, um, I remember, I have to admit, when, when AltaVista came up, um, I was, um, it's like, okay, how do we make sure our web pages get to be highly visible in this web search system? Well, let me go look up the papers of the people who created this, this search engine, because that will tell me what the algorithms that they're using are. And that was quite an effective strategy. But um, the, uh, uh, you know, the idea that you could you could fund that whole thing and and uh, and immensely profitably so with advertising was something I was I was uh, I was surprised and I, I I still I find it you know to me the concept that your customers aren't your customers is something that that always disturbs me a bit I mean I think that in the businesses I've built you know it really is the case that in a, in a, as much as we can the customers who are paying us are the people who are getting benefit from the things we're building um, rather than, you know, the customers are the people who are browsing on the web, but the, I'm sorry, the, the you know, the users are the people who are browsing on the web, the customers are the advertisers. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a tension, which of course uh, erupts every so often, but it's um, to me, it's, it's a lot simpler if the, you know, if the users of your thing are the customers of your thing. Um, so question here from Parmenides, what business concerns does the R&D process entail? What's the process of inventing your own algorithms from scratch? How many algorithms in Mathematica were just created in-house by, by, by us? Okay, so I mean, the, uh, well, I mean, I can answer the first question, last question first of, of, you know, how much of what we've built in Wolfram Language is our own sort of custom algorithms all the way down and how much is kind of from the literature or from existing libraries or, or whatever else. Um, what we find, so, you know, we'd love to be able to use what's already been built. Um, it's a lot easier than building it all ourselves. Uh, we have a delivery mechanism, you know, we're trying to make this very kind of smooth experience, this very integrated language that drives what we can use and what we cannot use. And so it may be that there's a sort of rough hewn thing that does some elaborate numerical computation thing. And great, that's a component, 
but then we have to build on top of that component to make it something that fits into our, in a sense, distribution channel, our kind of intellectual distribution channel of having this sort of unified language. Um, and I think if you if you look at what we do, that the the um, uh, sort of one of the the principal things we do with algorithms is 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 that interface between the sort of smooth automated uh, experience for users and whatever the underlying thing might might actually be. And sometimes the underlying thing turns out doesn't exist, so we have to build it. But quite often the underlying sort of raw nugget of algorithm already does exist. And what we're mostly doing is building automation on top of that to say, well, there are 300 ways you could solve this equation. You know, let's make automation that maybe itself very sophisticated that picks for your particular equation, which of those underlying nuggets of, of algorithmic work are we actually going to, to use? Now, I mean, there's a question of, uh, you know, what do you build? Um, when do you bother to do that, that sort of deep dive of building it yourself? And when you just say, the world isn't ready for this yet, uh, you know, it, it isn't going to work. And that's a, that's a complicated judgment call. I mean, we've been um, doing oh, all kinds of stuff with uh, machine learning for natural language understanding, okay? Which fundamentally doesn't really work that well yet. And, you know, you can, uh, there are particular use cases in machine learning and natural language processing but natural language understanding, it really doesn't work that well yet. And it may never work that well. And, and for us, it's partly like, these are tires we need to kick because if it does work, we sure want to use it. Um, if it doesn't work, well, so be it. But there's a question of how, how deep do you drill there? Um, you know, how, how, how hard do you try? And how much do you say, well, it's just not working yet. You know, maybe in five years, something will have been invented that will make it work better. I think for me, it's um, th this question of sort of what R&D is worth trying to do and what is kind of, um, you know, unrealistic to get to work right now. Um, there's also things to do with what ambient technology should you bet on. I mean, a famous example in our company is the whole virtual reality, augmented reality business where, where you know, a couple of years ago, I was again pushing our user experience and user interface people, yes, we should support virtual reality. And they're like, because we have long-term people at our company, some of them were saying, you told us that back in 1991 and it was a total bust back then. Why is it gonna be any different now? And so, you know, there's a question of, do you want to make an investment in this kind of newfangled piece of technology or not? Um, I mean, I was always interested watching Steve Jobs do what he did at, at Next and Apple and so on. You know, he would occasionally decide there's this new piece of technology. It's a little bit of a stretch, you know, optical discs, whatever else. It's like, is one going to bet on that or not? And, you know, sometimes if you bet on it too early, uh, you know, you can get really messed up because, you know, it just doesn't work. And um, you, uh, you know, if, if we, um, uh, or it, it's something where, um, uh, you know, you do it, but it's just way, way too slow if you're doing software or something. Um, uh, or... It can be like, like at what point do you, you know, where in the cycle do you, do you sort of get involved? For us, for example, blockchain and cryptocurrency is a good example. It's like, you know, certainly I knew about those things from when they were first being talked about. And it's like, when should we get involved with this? When has it got to the point where, where it's, 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 you know, it's got enough, uh, where, where it's to the point where it's pretty clear that there's actually some meaningful thing to do here and it's not all just going to go away. And another point is, Sometimes, okay, sometimes when you adopt a new technology, it's like, oh, what was it? A recent thing we were doing, 
we were going to use some uh, database related technology uh, for something that was some, um, and it was like, yeah, we should use this, we should use this. And it's like, well, we're not sure, we're not sure, we're not sure. It was some open source project. And well, guess what? We didn't use it. And thank goodness we didn't use it because a year later it went off and or two years later, it went off in a completely different direction and it would have completely not been you know, developed in the direction that made sense for our, our particular use case. So, I mean, picking technology one's going to base things on is a, is a tricky business. I mean, I, I like to think that the technology we built with Wolfram Language is a good bet because among other things, we've been able to maintain compatibility of the language for 33 years, which I think is not bad. You know, I routinely use things that I wrote, pieces of code that I wrote 30 years ago and, and they still work. And that's a really good sign. Um, but, you know, these are, these are always challenging issues. Boy, there's a question, a more general question from Pranjul about why does wealth inequality exist? Is it necessary for a society to work well? Boy, those are complicated questions. It's like, you know, how much inflation is right to push sort of uh, uh, push an economy forward? You know, if it's zero, well, maybe nobody does anything. And if it's too much, then everything goes crazy. And, uh, you know, how much is the right amount? I think people debate that a lot. And I think the the whole question of, of um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, the sort of um, socio-political economic questions. I'm, I, I do think from time to time about these things. I even recently have been thinking about some things to do with sort of foundations of economics. I, I think some of these things are, well, it depends what you want the world to be like. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is a, a shame right now, uh, you know, one of the things which I, I find, I suppose, personally frustrating is uh, particularly in the US, the, um, the, the, you know, the increasingly large gap between, I would say, uh, what is sometimes the techno elite type crowd and the rest of the, of, of the country and so on. And I, I, I continually, I mean, personally, I'm, I'm just, uh, uh, there just has to be so much talent and so much opportunity. And, but it's, it's an increasingly wide gap. And I can tell that because we do a whole bunch of educational kinds of things. And I'm always trying to recruit sort of students from the, the non-techno elite, you know, part of society. And it is remarkably difficult to do that. And I, I've had remarkably, uh, frankly, little success in doing it. Um, and it's kind of a sign to me of, uh, of sort of the separation, which I think is, is, is a bad thing. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, that's, I suppose, just my preferences about society or something. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it, it's, um, uh, you know, on the other hand, I, I, I certainly remember visiting the Soviet Union back in the, in the early 80s and, um, and hearing about the fact, you know, nothing works here. You know, nobody's motivated to do anything. So, you know, there are these different systems have, have, um, have all kinds of different issues. But, but I think that the, the um, uh, as I say, I, I find it, I find it um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a question of even if you want to, kind of reach other, uh, you know, outside of the sort of techno elite sphere, it's, in my experience, surprisingly difficult to do that. And I, and I think that that's, uh, and you also have to be asking questions like, you know, what are the motivations of different people in terms of, uh, you know, if, if you, you know, I, I see it as being a little bit, um, oh, like, you know, if, if you're, if you, 
go visit some place in the world where people are doing what they do and and it's very different from what one does in the in the kind of you know in the tech world or something like this you know are you are you trying to tell somebody you know your way of life is worse than my way of life as a you know as a tech ceo or something it's not obvious uh, you know you may think you hopefully you think your way of life as a tech ceo is better than their way of life as as whatever they're doing in in a you know nomadic um uh you know whatever it is but um um it's it's uh i don't think it's 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 not a not a, a clear thing to say you know fundamentally this is better than that and and i think it's always a, a tricky thing i you know my 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 feeling about it from a sort of personal ethics point of view is is you know uh if you if you show people options and they say i'm not interested in that you know that's good but showing them options is a good thing but figuring out how hard you communicate those options that's a challenge i mean it, it reminds me of of um uh you know one of my activities which is uh, kind of advising ceos of companies and um uh, i'm even reminded of a of a, a recent case where it's like um uh you know you you i'm really quite certain that particular company in question should be doing a particular thing but the ceo of that company just doesn't really want to do it i think it's a mistake but how hard do you push it's an interesting question i don't know the answer to that I mean, in in, in um, uh, it's kind of like you're showing this is what you should be doing. I can tell you a zillion reasons why this is what you should be doing. You know, I'm pretty certain from my experience this is what you should be doing. And by the way, I've had the experience a whole bunch of times where I've advised CEOs and I've said you really, really should be doing this, and they don't do it for one reason or another. Usually internal reasons. Usually their own, uh, partly psychology and partly just. It's easy to give advice. It's hard to execute sometimes on that advice, um, but they don't do it. And then they come back to me a year or two later, and they say, "You know, that was a really good thing you suggested. I wish I'd done it." And then they say, "I wish you'd pushed a bit harder." And the question is, how hard should you push? Um, and uh, uh, so that's a that's a challenging thing that I don't I don't think I know the answer to really. Um, question here. Uh, Questions here about uh, from Atori. How important is a PhD in doing research in industry? Uh, look, I mean, it, it it depends a lot on the details. I mean, it depends on whether. So there are particular places where the specific knowledge that you get in doing a PhD is going to be important, um, and there are places where the getting of a PhD is mostly an exercise in can you do a big project and get it finished, and. Um, uh, you know that that that's I would say that in the case of specific expertise, um, you know, well, then you're going to need the PhD because you well you need the equivalent amount of expertise that could have been got by going to work in some company or some other place where, you know, you spent several years learning about some particular field. Whether you do that in the context of getting the you know the the, the official sort of crested PhD. I don't think that matters very much, but you're going to need a sort of a, a tower of you know many of, of multiple years of experience in some particular area, and in some areas that is best packaged as you know a getting a PhD type type of thing. Um, in terms of sort of general R and D, in uh, uh, you know in my company, for example, I haven't looked recently, but I did this survey years ago 
of, of what the degree backgrounds of people who are in our R&D organization are. And um, at that time, it was sort of a uniform PhD, master's degree, bachelor's degree, and a few kind of uh, didn't finish college uh, folk. And it was sort of a, a whole distribution across these. There wasn't, it wasn't like our advanced R&D. In fact, I think our advanced R&D at that time was more weighted towards people who had less formal educational qualifications. Um, actually, part of the reason for that was in, in our particular case, um, that was, uh, um, you know, sometimes when people go and they get a PhD, they, they end up being in this very, very specific narrow area where they, they've got a huge tower of knowledge, but it's very narrow. And, and often what's most important in sort of the high innovation phase of a, of a research effort is broad thinking, not all concentrated in one sort of narrow, narrow tube, so to speak. Um, and sometimes even that narrowing, even the, the PhD can even be a negative because it's like you, you're too embedded in kind of the academic way of thinking. We're going to be very narrow. We're going to make things which we can write papers about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, I think there are places where it might even be a negative. Um, I think that, um, you know, in, in the R&D departments of big companies, sometimes it's kind of like, well, the HR department just says we only take PhDs. I think that's comparatively rare. Um, I think they're foolish to, to be thinking that way. Um, so I would say that the, the answer is um, it, it's, you know, unless there's specific knowledge that requires that sort of vertical tower of, 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 uh, uh, of learning, I, I would say I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't have said that it was a terribly important thing. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, the ability to finish projects and in terms of, you know, people who are hiring at least correctly for this, it's like, can you finish a project? Can you do a project in an environment similar to the environment in which you're going to be in whatever company it is? And, and for example, if it's a situation where everybody's doing a bunch of projects where they're sort of somewhat individual projects, then the question is, can you take an individual project and do it in a case where it's very, very, very team-based and has to be because you're building some, you know, giant um, device that where everybody sort of has to pitch in together, um, then it's a slightly different thing. But I think that the the uh, you know, in, in to be able to say, look, I've done these projects, I've got these independent projects I've built, that's a that's an important thing, uh, probably more so than I've done this PhD in a structured environment. I've been able to produce this structured thing better in this unstructured environment. Look at this amazing project I've been able to do. At least that would be my point of view. Okay, question from Slayer: How do you know if there's a viable revenue stream for your pro product? Okay, reasonable question. Common sense is a very good start. You know, selling products where I think, um, you know, the first question is, you know, imagine you have the product. How do you actually sell it? Like, let's say you have this thing and it's relevant to everybody who has a kid between the ages of 10 and 15. Okay, how are you going to reach those people? That's a huge number of people, and but it's it's relevant. Well, potentially relevant. It's relevant to one in a thousand people who has a kid between the age of ten and fifteen. Right? It's very hard to reach that group. You know, you could say, well, I'm going to do a Super Bowl ad. Well, that's extremely expensive, and uh, you know, you have to you have to really know you're going to make back. You know, you're going to get millions and millions of dollars in sales from that. It's not going to you know, it's not a realistic thing. Otherwise, it's not clear how you reach those people. If you say my thing is relevant to people who are doing, you know, inspections on nuclear reactors or something, 
it's kind of like, well, you kind of know who those people are. There's a certain number of nuclear reactors. You can kind of go identify who each of those people is. And you say, I know how to reach those people. Now the question is, do they want my product? There may be all kinds of reasons they may not want your product. Let's say that there are, you know, oh, they have to have regulatory compliance of this, that, and the other. And in order to get that, you have to go through this and this and this. And without that, nobody's going to care. Um, or, uh, you know, or I mean, th th those are those are some kinds of questions. I mean, I think that in, um, um, uh, you know, sometimes people think a lot in terms of sort of the competitive space. I tend not to. I mean, I tend to be like, can I make something which is unique and different and interesting? Um, other people sort of more triangulate of, well, we've got this competitor here, this competitor here. You know, can we navigate that to be able to get to something which is different enough that, um, that people will be interested in it? Clearly, if there are nearby competitors, you need to look at, you know, how do they reach the market? And, you know, for example, if you say, we're going to make this amazing thing, it's going to take over the market for such and such. You know, it's going to take over the uh, uh, market for, you know, calculators for something or other. Um, then, you know, the, the market for, let's say, web calculators for, for this, that or the other thing. You say, well, how big is that market? Let's, let's figure out. Even if we took it over, is it actually worth anything? Now, sometimes it may be, well, the market right now is crummy because the product is crummy. And you know, if we did it, we could make 50 times more revenue because then people would actually want this thing, which they don't want right now. But those are those are other good things to think about. I mean, it's like, well, we're going to make a slightly better mouse trap here, but the existing mouse trap is making far too little money. That's not an encouraging way to 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 operate. I think um, um, uh, you know, so it's really important sometimes. I mean, people people. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm always amazed at the extent to which people don't apply common sense in thinking about uh, sort of business questions. And, you know, it's, it's a thing where, you know, I think in, you know, an MBA school, people learn a certain set of, of sort of approaches. I think one of the things, uh, you know, despite best efforts, when things are really new in the world, that's not something you're going to be able to learn in school. Um, I mean, when things are uh, you know, when there's a sort of a new approach to things, it's like you're kind of on your own and you have to sort of figure it out. But, but I think, you know, the, the, the most important thing in my view is, is continue to apply common sense. If you have an analytical background, you know, you've done some kind of, comp, uh, you know, sophisticated techie thing and so on, you kind of know enough to be able to do sort of the analysis. Oh, let's look at these companies. Let's find out how many they are. Let's estimate how big they are. Let's estimate this and that and the other and come up with some numbers and so on. You can do that stuff. It's like, well, you might say, oh, no, no, I don't know how to do it. I never went to MBA school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Turns out it's really common sense, but you have to continue to apply the same analytical thinking that you have in sort of techie areas uh, to that type of thing. So let's see, uh, there's a question here from Costa, do I think my brain worked better when I was 20 or, uh, or when I was 50? Well, I'm, I'm even older than both of those things, obviously, right now. Um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about the operation of my brain right now. Long may it continue. Um, you know, several things have changed, okay? I know more. I have a good memory. So that's, you know, that's, that helps. You just sort of, the more you learn, the more you know. Um, Another thing is I got better at sort of understanding how to approach problems. 
and uh, things like scoping out, you know, what, what kind of a problem is this? You know, should I be going in in this way or in that way? And that's partly a matter of experience, partly a matter of knowing myself. It's like, is this something, well, for, for me, often one of the issues is, is this something I should be doing myself or is this something I should delegate to somebody else? Because part of being able to do things effectively is you know, working with other people and being able to know what's the thing where I really need to do that myself uh, versus, look, there's somebody else who at any age would have been better than me at doing this and I should just get them to do it. Um, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, when I was 20, I worked with a lot of people who were much older than me, like uh, one uh, particular uh, physicist, a well-known physicist who was about, when I was about 18, he was about 60. And um, he always used to complain that, you know, he was three times my age and that was why, you know, he was slow, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't terribly slow. Um, but, uh, you know, I did think at that time, what's it going to be like when it's flipped around and I'm working with people who are much younger than me, which is, which is absolutely what I do all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I think I do creditably. And it, it really helps to know a lot of stuff. And it helps to have sort of uh, tried to learn from my patterns of thinking and what I'm able to do successfully, what I'm not able to do successfully, kind of more the how to think about problems and, uh, you know, oh, I've seen a problem like this before, even if the content is different, I've seen a problem with the same sort of shape as this before, how do I, how do I use that? Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of raw processing, uh, maybe it's just from the inside, I can't really tell, um, I, 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 you know, other than dealing with the 20 something year olds um, uh, who uh, are nice and quick and that's always a pleasure, um, I, I suppose I, I've, uh, I don't feel unbelievably slow yet relative to them. Um, uh, long may that continue. Let's see. There's a question from uh, Stephen here. Um, uh, comment about someone who talks about getting good at the individual skill of making money. Uh, can I say what I've learned about the skill of making money? Boy, I made a decent amount of money. I, I would say that for me, it's like, uh, kind of, I have never really concentrated on making money as such. For me, it's do things that I think are good things to do and don't kind of be stupid about how you make money from doing those things. You know, there are ways to not make money, so to speak. I mean, there are things that where you say, I'm gonna do all this stuff and, um, uh, you know, there isn't really a light at the end of the tunnel. There's, I'm going to do all this stuff, but even if I did all of this and it worked out really well, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no money to be made, made here. The other thing that is, is, you know, is a real killer for making, making money is you do a project and you get this whole machine ramped up to do the project. Then the project is basically finished. You've, you've spent the money, you've got the project, you've built a product, it's out in the market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the engine is running and you keep running that engine and you keep running the engine and it keeps on spending money. And by that point, that money is all wasted because you already made the thing. You don't need to keep running that engine. I mean, you need to continue developing it. That's a common thing, but, but, but there's a, in my experience, that the place where you fail to make money is when you've developed something and you stop paying attention to it and it keeps on spending money. And you don't, you know, when you're really paying attention it's much easier to have it make money. When you're not paying attention, that's when it spends money, but doesn't make money. At least that's been my experience. 
Um, and that's that's a place to watch. And I, I've sometimes not done a very good job of that, of, you know, when a thing is not in its kind of energetic phase, you know, how do you make sure that it is either continually energized or at least not spending too much money? Um, and in terms of, of um, uh, you know, I suppose that there are uh, sort of being able to, when it comes to making money from, you know, part of making money has to do with, you have to have a, a structure in which to do it. I mean, like, you know, you make a product, it's like, how are you gonna get the product to the market? How are you, you know, it has to have some where, you know, there has to be some structure around it. It's not just, I had this cool idea, you know, the ideas as such aren't worth that much. What, what ends up mattering is the whole execution of the idea and how you actually deliver it to the world, so to speak. And if you don't have that delivery mechanism, it's difficult. I mean, occasionally, uh, more than occasionally, I have ideas where it's like, well, this is a really cool idea. You know, you could even make a product out of this, but it's like, I don't have the distribution channel for that product. I have no idea what to do with that. You know, it's not something I can um, uh, can do anything with. I mean, one example for me uh, comes to mind is, is years ago, I, as a matter of sort of, uh, sort of personal um, uh, nerdy organization, I started, I thought, I need exercise every day. Let me, like, if I can't walk outside, I'm going to walk on a treadmill. Okay, if I walk on a treadmill, I want to be doing some work at that time. I want to be able to type. Okay, so I figured out, you know, how do you manage to set things up as many years ago now? How do I manage to set things up so you can, you know, type on a treadmill? And how do you, you know, arrange the little gel strip in the right place so you're, you know, doing the biomechanics correctly so that you can actually keep your, your fingers on a, on a keyboard at such and such a number of miles an hour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, all good. So I did it for myself and it's like, this would be a good product. And it's like, I have no clue how to distribute such a product. You know, I could like make a patent. Okay, what the heck am I going to do with that? You know, I could, um, I could say, well, you know, here's this thing. You know, we mostly make software for, for this or that. We make websites. Oh, and we also have this thing for making this, you know, treadmill that you can type on. It's like not going to go anywhere. You know, not, a, not an idea that I can do anything with. Um, and so it's like, I'm not going to do anything with this. Let's move on to the next thing. Um, so I think that's a, you know, that, that's a, you can, you can waste a lot by, by pursuing things that you just don't have a mechanism to, to get there. I, I would say that I'm, I'm a, a bad example in terms of, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, you make a bunch of money and then you invest it and you make more money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've done rather little of that. I mean, I, I have a pretty simple strategy, which I unfortunately am too lazy usually to execute well, which is whenever I'm using some product and I think this is a good product, it's a good thing. It's like, uh, you know, invest in that company. It's a simple, simple strategy um, from which I happen to have done very well. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's, well, you know, I know the CEO, I believe in the CEO, even though the rest of the world doesn't believe in the CEO. Okay, I should invest in this company. But honestly, I, I, I find, you know, I happen to have made a decent amount of money doing those kinds of things. But I am, um, um, uh, maybe it's, it's a strange psychology on my part and maybe a sign that I'm not really a business person after all is that you know I feel a little bit guilty when I make money from just oh somebody else's stock price went up it's like I didn't do anything for that you know I I, I made this decision at some point to invest in this company that took me five minutes to make that decision and um, uh, you know I, I, it feels much more like the right thing if it's like if I made some money it's like because I actually had a good idea myself and I actually executed and I put in a lot of hard work. Um, to me, that feels much more 
you know, I, I uh, it feels much more like the right thing than um, than this. Oh, I happen to be riding on some, some surfing some particular wave. But you know that that's probably a comment on my own anti-business oriented psychology or something, um, and it may not apply to other people. Let's see. There's a question here from um, Lee. Um, what advice can you provide an entrepreneur who has lost the high-tech business of 15 years due to bankruptcy? How can one overcome the emotional baggage of such a loss? Um, you know, the good news is if that's in the U.S., uh, the U.S. is a place where people expect uh, sort of people to try again. There are countries, you know, I remember, well, in, in other countries, people are like, oh, my gosh, you know, failure is such a terrible, shameful thing that if you fail, you'll never be able to try again. Certainly in the US, that really doesn't seem to be the story. It's like, you know, the stories of the, the, the mythology of Silicon Valley is full of failed, 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 amazing success. But I think the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge always is um, from, a, from a purely personal point of view. I mean, look, I, I've been lucky enough in, in my life, I've not had really, uh, you know, I've, I've not experienced kind of the resounding failure type story. Um, and uh, uh, so I can't speak too much from personal experience with that. I would say that in terms of, of um, um, what can I suggest? I mean, in, in um, um, you know, I think one of the things I sometimes see with people is they work very hard at something and then there's something that they do kind of just for fun and they don't take it too seriously. And it turns out that thing is incredibly successful. So for myself, you know, back, this is early 1980s, you know, I did uh, particle physics. I did some computation type stuff. I did those as, you know, they were hard work work. And then for various reasons, I was like, I want to do something for fun. And so I started working on simple programs like cellular automata and kind of understanding how those worked and so on. And it's like, I'm just doing this for fun. Turned out that was sort of one of the most interesting pieces of science I ever figured out came out of that activity that I did for fun. And I think people sometimes have the point of view that, that you know, there's a, there's a thing that they should be doing because it's kind of the hard work that they were built to do and, and so on and so on and so on. And then there's this other thing over here, which it's like, well, it'd be kind of fun to do that. And it's like, well, just do something that's fun. Because, you know, among other things, what can happen is that the amount of sort of emotional energy that you put into something, is just kind of fun. Even though you don't know, this isn't going to be a thing that's of dramatic, profound, you know, immediately obvious earth-shattering significance. It's just something you find fun. And it turns out, well, you know, what I found is, uh, you know, the, the pattern of my life has been that almost everything that starts as a hobby turns into a business. And, um, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. I've been doing all this live streaming recently. I don't know what that's going to turn into, but, uh, you know, I do it because it's kind of fun. And um, uh, it's not, and, and maybe it turns into something, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I think that that's a, a good way to, uh, you know, if, you, if you're like, oh my gosh, I have this, you know, really hard work, it didn't work out so well. It's like, just do something fun. And, um, you know, if you have the, you know, if, if you created a business before, you do something that's fun, it's, uh, you know, turns out if there's a, if, if you notice somewhere in doing the thing that's fun, 
oh yeah, actually there's a business opportunity here. You'll notice that you'll be able to, to leverage from that. That, that, that's my, um, that would be my immediate take on, on that. Um, okay, so a question here from, from Sean. Um, boy, there, there are a couple of related questions here, quite interesting ones. From Sean says, I'm obviously a person who's created a way to dive deeply into a subject. How do you recommend that people keep their focus when it's easy to be distracted? Uh, yeah, well, I think, what could I say about that? I mean, I don't find it too, too difficult to do that. To me, being able to have incremental progress on a project is important. And, and sometimes I, I just like, I'm not, you know, for me, I'm doing, let's say a technical project. I'm doing a project with other people. It's like, if it's a technical project, I'm like actually writing, creating notebooks, you know, that, that are, that are um, uh, you know, the, the steps in the project, I'm writing code, things are happening every day. Um, that's important to me to keeping focused on the project. If I was just like, well, I'm going to do a little piece here, a little piece there, but being systematic in the things that I'm actually producing is important. And same with working with other people, being systematic and there's some sort of project management mechanism, there's a weekly meeting, things are happening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, allow yourself to be a little bit distracted, you know, pay attention to what's happening in the rest of the world. Be curious about it. That's not bad. But so long as you have a thing where you know, okay, you know, this is the structure I got to this point. Now I'm going to get to the next point, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you have that structure, I think it is, at least for me, it's not so difficult to, to sort of keep going and get it to the end. I mean, look, I, I, I would say that, you know, I, I, I kind of have noticed that I'm pretty good at actually finishing stuff. And sometimes that goes way out of control. Like there's a project like my big new kind of science book project that was a project where I thought that was a six month project, maybe a year project, but I have a definite plan. It took me 10 and a half years to finish that project. That's a long time. I mean, I was working at least half of all my time on that project for 10 and a half years. It's a huge investment and um, arguably too much of an investment. I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what, what came out, but that was from a personal point of view, that was serious you know, tenacity to get through a project like that. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, so for me, I sort of have a principle, I finish projects. Um, and I, I suppose I, I've not, you know, it's funny because I've, as I put more and more things on the web and I've got pretty good archives, I'm putting a bunch of, 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 um, of papers that I wrote maybe 40 years ago, which I didn't finish, putting them on the web. And I still, it still bugs me. I didn't finish it. I should have finished it. And like, I'm just working on a project right now that I just discovered that I almost did in... Uh, in 1992, and I almost did it again in 2007. And it's like, by golly, I'm actually going to finish it this time. Uh, not a terribly big project, but but um, uh, you know, I think this that there's a, a and also you kind of need to have a, a good vision in your mind for what it means to finish the project. Is it you know you're creating something, you're writing something, you're releasing a product? What are you doing? Um, you know, you have to kind of be always thinking about the, you know, what the end is, because sometimes people will do a project, and they don't really think what's the end game going to be? What, do you, what am I trying to make here? I'm doing some project, it's some research project, whatever else, but you know, I'm doing it and I'm doing this thing over here and that thing over there and that thing over there. But what is the final delivery vehicle? Am I writing a paper? Am I doing, you know, am I writing a blog post? Am I doing, am I putting out a website? You know, what's the final delivery? And I think that's another way to help one focus on, you know, finishing projects is what is it I'm trying to fill in? 
What's the thing I'm trying to actually put together? And as you incrementally are able to do that, it's much easier to see how you get the project finished. And also you get to see for yourself, oh, I filled in four out of five pieces of what I need to do and so on. So at least that, that would be my suggestion. But I, I don't think you should shut down sort of all distractions. I mean, if, if a distraction means you're going and watching television or looking at your Facebook news feed, yeah, well, I would shut down those distractions. I mean, I think the, you know, one of the things for me, at least, look, I, I don't watch any television. I don't look at any Facebook, you know, newsfeed. Um, uh, you know, do I get sort of fear of missing out from that? Well, no, I don't actually. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's like, well, yeah, I can watch some, something, I can see something. It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then I think, well, what's on the other side of that? The time that I might be spending on that, what else could I be doing? And I'm like, I really care about these other things I might be doing. I don't really care about that. It's fun while I'm doing it. It's fun. I watch the thing, I, whatever. But but it's like, and then I've, I'm done. And it's like, I don't know what I have to show for this. It doesn't feel, for me, it doesn't feel very fulfilling. And so for me, it's pretty easy to make the decision. I'm just, just ignore that stuff. Just don't, don't look at that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, and don't get sort of reeled in to, to looking at it. Okay, this is from RBS saying, they rarely finish their projects. Please help me. Business sounds boring. I just want to do innovation and research. I think maybe business could be a consequence of a new innovative idea and successful project. Um, uh, let's see, of course I could be a business person in the real world since my projects are my hobby and, and personally based. You know, this theory, I just explained that, that sort of things that I do as hobbies end up becoming sort of businesses for me um, very often. And, um, you know, I think this theory of I'm going to do this, this really boring thing as my day job, but I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to have a lot of fun with my hobby. I, I kind of feel like that's a shame. It's like, can't you be innovative enough to figure out how to turn the thing you really, really like that's your hobby into something that's somehow also your day job? Now, it might be, it might be just outright impossible, but I think that, that it's worth putting a fair amount of effort into seeing is there, could there conceivably be a way to take the stuff you really like and maybe some tweaking of it, some refactoring of it, make that into a thing that you can do as, as a day job, so to speak. Um, I mean, people, you know, what is quotes business about? Depends what sort of aspect of business. If you are, you know, working in an existing business, then you've got your slot. If your slot is something you're interested in, great. If it isn't, then find another slot. Um, if it's a question of you starting the business, well, it's kind of what you make of it. You know, you can start a business where, where you get, you know, immediately plugged into you're the person who's selling to all the customers. Okay, if you don't like sales, it's a bad deal. You can be in a situation where you're, you know, different kinds of things. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the features of CEOing is you really do get to pick uh, you know, what, I mean, in the end, you're sort of holding the bag and you have to be able to do sort of jump into almost everything. But the things that you choose to emphasize and spend the most of your time on, you get to pick that. Now, the things you pick may or may not be the things, you know, in other words, you can make your company more and less successful by picking those things in a better or worse way. But it's still the case that, you know, in the end, it's sort of your decision, what you pick, you can be very technically oriented, you can be very people oriented, you can be very kind of uh, uh, sort of business and distribution oriented, very marketing oriented, and, and you can, or you can pick 
some of those things and try and delegate the other ones away. You kind of have to understand them or they'll go wrong, at least in my experience. But, you know, it's not the case that you say, oh, I'm doing a business, I've got to lick all the stamps, so to speak. It's not true. You know, you, you can, so long as you understand that process and you can hire somebody to do that, then that's the thing you're not doing. And you're, you know, somebody, some people may say, oh, I really want to do this business, but that technical stuff, that all that IT stuff and so on, oh my God, that's just horrifying. I, I can't deal with any of that stuff. And yet somebody else will say, I really love the technical stuff. I really love getting in and, you know, setting up the database system and doing this and that and the other. And, you know, all that stuff where I'm dealing with, you know, the accounting, so, you know, dealing with uh, customers, whatever. I hate that stuff. Well, you can, to some extent, choose. And, and also in the structure of the business you build. For example, if you build a, a, a sort of consumer on the web business, you might never talk to a customer. Um, whereas if you build a business that's that's talking to a, a small number of, you know, selling to a small number of customers, you'll be talking to customers all the time. So, you know, these things are, you know, you can kind of choose a bit what you do. Now, in terms of, of um, uh, sort of innovation and how to do innovation, it's, look, you know, if you are in a, a well-established field and you are prepared to play the academic game, universities are a good deal. There's also always at any given time, there's a certain set of research labs that exist. You know, it's been a changing set that went from usually the, a good rule of thumb is whenever companies have some level of monopoly in some area, they can afford to have kind of fairly innovative research lab type operations that will benefit them and that all make sense and so on. But, you know, sometimes you can find a niche, maybe it doesn't last forever, maybe 10 years or something, where, you know, like at one moment I remember years ago, I remember talking to um, the uh, person who became CEO, actually, of a large, um, uh, let's say, oil instrumentation company. And um, they were at that time, they were actually the world's most profitable company at that, at that particular moment. And um, they were like, oh, we, we really need to, you know, we're going to do basic research, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, like I gave them some advice about, you know, you should set up some kind of endowment because, you know, when the price of oil goes down, you're not going to want to do this basic research anymore. They didn't do that. They, they hired a bunch of very fancy researchers. They, um, you know, there was sort of a downturn. They sort of cut the funding. They, all those people left. The whole thing evaporated. But that was a sort of typical example. While it was a thing, it was a good deal for somebody who was interested in, in research and innovation. It was a good environment. It was a good collection of people. And, um, you know, there are usually these, I would say, about usually about 10 year, sometimes they've been longer. You know, Bell Labs lasted a lot longer than that. You know, these places where they are fairly uh, sort of often quite well managed, um, sort of places where a lot of interesting Xerox Park, another example. Um, you know, these places were sort of really interesting, a good environment doesn't have the same kind of academic sort of the, the sort of the, the some of the, the sometimes parochialism of academia. Um, but it's just like, we're going to do something that's going to be new and exciting. Um, and but but usually it doesn't last forever. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a different environment in which to be embedded. Um, than than the start your own company thing. I mean, the start your own company thing. It's hard work. You know, in, in, um, uh, it's not something, if you're like, I don't really want to work very hard, I wouldn't start a company. Um, you know, it might be, oh, I have this amazing idea. It's all going to be incredibly easy. I don't think it's ever incredibly easy. And if it's easy, you're going to want to go to the next level and it's not going to be easy anymore. 
Um, so it's, you know, I, I would say it's not for the, you know, uh, now, you know, having said that again, I, I keep on emphasizing they're just very different personalities of people who start companies and are successful with companies. But I would say that sort of tenacity and working hard are fairly, I, I haven't seen many examples where that isn't the case. Let's see. Um, a question from Jimmy is the fact that a lot of companies are pre-revenue and some large companies don't even have a viable revenue stream indicate a tech bubble? Oh, good question. I mean, one would think so, but um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to know. People sometimes think that sort of a, a, a new way of doing business Sometimes it's like you can be, if you define a new way of doing business, it can be years before you start making money. But if you own that new way of doing business, it's inevitable. And since, you know, things like stock prices are basically supposedly in some theory of economics, I don't think it's a very real theory of economics, are a reflection of sort of the expected, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the sort of this discounted value of, of future income streams and so on. I don't think that's actually a real model of, of, uh, of, of stock prices in, uh, that anybody would believe in at this point. But, but um, I think it's much more the internal psychology of, of, um, of bidding things up and so on. But I think that the, um, uh, the question of, um, you, know, you know, can there be meaningful companies that don't make money for years? I think the answer is, the answer is, is yes. That, that certainly worked in the past and I'm sure it will work in the future. Now, another interesting question is if you look at something like cryptocurrencies, where there's really no there there. I mean, in the sense that, you know, the idea that you're going to buy cups of coffee with Bitcoin is not a real idea. Um, the idea that eventually there will be computational contracts that run the world, that's a real idea, but it has only tenuous connection to cryptocurrency. So a lot of what goes on in cryptocurrency is a story of kind of the, the internal process of, of transactions happening and the internal sort of process of speculation and then sort of, you know, ICOs being done, denominated in one cryptocurrency for a new cryptocurrency and all these kinds of financial machinations. And I have to say that my opinion about whether that's all sort of bubbled or not has changed a bit because, you know, it's a question of your foundational idea about economics. What is economics? What makes value in economics? You know, in the end, we're just all the economic system of the world is just in the world. There's nothing from the outside, so to speak, that's feeding it. So in some sense, it's all just sort of bubbling around in the world and somehow making some version of value. And I've come to think uh, recently, actually, in a, in a very basic science kind of way about the analogy between value and this phenomenon I call computational irreducibility. And essentially what it's saying is, whenever there's enough stuff going on and enough different ununwindable transactions that happened, then there is a notion of sort of genuine value that is some sort of, it's similar to the notion of heat and thermodynamics, that it's, it's kind of a, a, you can't, you know, you can't sort of arrange all the molecules. By the time something is, by the time you've changed the motion of molecules into heat, where they're all sort of randomly running around, you can't sort of go in and change that back into, oh, by the way, the molecules are all gonna climb to one side of the room and, um, and the rest of it is going to be without anything. There's sort of an irreducible sense in which there's this, you know, in which the, 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 this sort of heat exists in, this, in the system. And I think it's somewhat the same kind of thing with value in, in, um, in financial systems as a recent sort of thinking of mine, which kind of makes me feel more, uh, more convinced about the fact that there is 
some sort of ununwindable uh, value in some sense in you know all these transactions that happen inside cryptocurrencies and things like that, which means rather bizarrely that that there might be a that in some sense there's a notion of value in which it produces in a sense nothing. I mean, after all, you know, in the end, if one's very sort of uh, zoomed out of it, you know, we've got this sort of one closed ecosystem, you know, closed world, and we're not really producing anything outside of that. It's all internal things happening, and you could say, well. You know, and this sort of relates to the philosophy of economics and things, you know, in the end, it relates to sort of making people better off and things like this. But but I would say that it's a it's a pretty complicated thing to say. And I, I would say that I am increasingly convinced that there can be sort of a solid value to something, even if in a sense, it seems to have nothing productive happening in the world. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it means that, um, uh, you know, there, there's a there's a value to activity, so to speak. That doesn't necessarily have to be um, kind of uh, uh, activity that somehow has some sort of lasting benefit for the world or some such other thing. Now, that doesn't mean that my own philosophy of business and the things I choose to do, you know, I'm much more interested in the lasting value to the world than I am in the sort of process of having financial value. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of on, on beginning to think that there's a, a notion of financial value that can be truly devoid of any sort of uh, uh, long term you know, uh, visible betterment of the world, so to speak. Um, I'm not sure that's a, you know, what that means in terms of one's sort of socio-political point of view, I don't really know. I haven't thought that through properly, um, but uh, uh, you know, that, that's so, so I'm, I, I don't know, um, uh, you know, from a purely financial point of view, it's, you know, the question of sort of the disconnected universe um, and, you know, can it have financial value? I, I'm beginning to think maybe it can. And um, so, so that's not a great answer, but but uh, um, that's that's my my current thinking on this. Um, question from Sean: How did I deal with issues regarding scaling systems as our company grew? I would say, um, uh, you know, one important thing about starting companies is, uh, you know, you can be pretty scrappy with a lot of your systems because you don't know what's going to be important and what's not. And as you get beyond certain scales, and you know, there's some government regulations that apply to companies of you know, more than X number of employees and things like that, and that gives you some sense of scale for this, but there's also just the practicality of you don't need the most elaborate you know, vacation tracking system when you have five employees. Um, and uh, you know, the, for example, in, in our company, you know, at the beginning, like, you know, we had a, a totally scrappy, you know, accounting system that was really quite underpowered for, for, you know, as the company grew, it became underpowered, but it was okay at the very beginning. And, you know, often you trade off people and sometimes more sophisticated people um, sort of uh, doing things. It's like, you know, you can have a very well orchestrated, very well-oiled system, and then you need people who are less able to kind of think and build systems operating it. Or you can have something where, well, we didn't do it, you know, we, it's just held together with, with uh, you know, scotch tape and so on, and it needs somebody quite sophisticated to have the thing not sort of blow itself apart. But that's okay when the company is still small and you don't need, it's, it's not really an industrial thing. Like, let's say onboarding employees, okay? So, you know, by the time you have hundreds of employees and you're, you know, you have, you're hiring new people all the time, you need a process for doing that. But at the point where you have 20 employees, you really don't need that. You know, it's, it's pointless. And, and you can have, 
you know, the CEO can personally greet and, you know, and train those first 20 employees. Um, whereas, you know, by the time you're at 500 employees or, or more or a thousand or whatever, it's like, that's absolutely a stupid idea. You want people who are specialized in, you know, HR, they're going to deal with onboarding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting issue. At when do you make those transitions? And I, I think if anything, you know, you, you keep going until it's sort of so obvious what you do in some process that you can say, okay, we can delegate this to somebody who doesn't have the same ability to kind of invent things, you know, on the fly. Um, and I think, you know, you can, you can wait a while to do that. I think that, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of servicing customers, you know, you, you ought to do things where, you know, there's a question of, okay, something breaks and it's like, do you have the sophisticated R&D person fixing up that thing for the customer, you know, busily fixing it up? Or do you have this whole mechanism with layers of technical support and this and that and the other? It's kind of okay if you're small and it happens only once a month that that, you know, sophisticated R&D person, you know, is, is, uh, um, is being called in to go fix that thing for the customer. Um, but if it happens, you know, 10 times a day, it's a different story. So I think that that's that's my way of thinking about sort of scaling things up. And I would say don't don't overbuild at the beginning. I mean it's it's like what people do. It's like a classic of people starting a company. Okay. So the classic, I'm a more sort of cartoon version of this is a group of people says we're going to start a company. They say it's going to do this. It's going to be great, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then they start discussing how they're going to split up the pie for this company. And they get so wound up in splitting up the pie and they put so much energy into splitting up the pie. It's like, oh, what was that company going to do after all? You know, and it, it's like, uh, you know, there's no point in splitting that, you know, in, in understanding that next level until you know the basics of what is the company. You know, so there's no point in building elaborate systems until you know what's going to be important. I mean, I, I'll give you an example recently, sort of a funny example. In our science project, people were saying when we brought out this uh, physics project, it's like, what about peer review? It's like, okay, let's build a system for people doing, you know, peer review of our, of our, of our uh, documents and so on. So people in my company are well-trained to like, well, everything we build, it's gotta be a system, it's gotta work well, it's gotta be scalable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, you know, it's gonna take us ages to set up this peer review thing. You know, we gotta have this, this whole data system behind it and it's gotta have all these, you know, mechanisms for, pre, you know, approving things and pipelines and workflows and so on. And I said, just don't worry about it. Let's just put up these things. And if anybody actually sends in a review, then by hand, we'll go process it. We'll put it up on the web. I believe in, what is it? It must be 10 months now. I think there's only one review that got put up there. So it would have been a horrible mistake if I'd allowed my, my team to go and you know build all this stuff and spend you know a whole week or two weeks whatever building all this elaborate technology to do it doesn't matter you know it's like in 10 months one review don't need anything you know much more efficient to have the person who was i don't know who put it actually actually put it up no doubt somebody who is way overqualified put that one review up because it didn't matter it was you know very little work so so i think that's a, you know don't don't overbuild when you don't know what what's actually going to happen um, and, uh, you know, worst case, somebody's up very busy, you know, up late at night doing things. And it's like, that's the price of success. You know, in, in the case where things are successful, yes, 
you know, yes, everybody has to be, you know, working very hard and so on, but be happy because that's, you know, that's a sign of success. And then you start putting in place the more systematic systems and, and people can be, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't have to do that anymore. Let's see. Oh boy. Okay. A few more, few more things and then I, I need to run off here. Um, so question from Harry, what's my business, what's my take on the emerging space industry? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I think about this from time to time. You know, I, I know a bunch of people involved in that industry and it's like, what's the killer app for space going to be? And, you know, it's funny because you say, what's the killer app for computers going to be? Obviously that was before my time, but it's like if Alan Turing had tried to imagine what's the killer app for computers, he probably would have, he would have got it. He did get it wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what for, what's the killer app for the web? What's the killer app for you know each one of these different kinds of things? How do you figure out what it's going to be? But you think back to airplanes. What was the you know people wonder what's the killer app for airplanes going to be? Really transporting people? You know aerial reconnaissance? You know uh, dropping bombs? You know cargo flights? You know I don't know uh, tourism? You know it's it's um uh, well obviously we know the the end of that story. You know for space. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I remember times when people were saying when, when space was sort of in a in a low, low ebb, people were saying, oh, it'll be used for growing perfect crystals in space that will be used in the semiconductor industry or in the drug industry. Um, maybe. Uh, oh, it'll be used for, um, you know, mining the moon for helium-3. Maybe. I really doubt that one. Oh, you know, we'll go capture an asteroid and it'll be full of, uh, um, you know, full of tantalum and that will be really really, really, you know, we'll do tantalum mining there. Well, I don't know how much tantalum the world actually needs. Um, you know, again, sometimes things uh, get, um, you know, sometimes if somebody said, we just got, you know, tantalum is now free, you know, okay, what can the world do with that? Maybe something will be invented that's important there. But, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, it's interesting, even the, you know, satellite imagery, for example, you know, now that's, that's an interesting case because, it's now there are several companies that are now you know taking daily fairly high resolution satellite imagery of the Earth. What are people going to do with that? Well, there's weird things like you know hedge funds can buy some of that to go do you know car counting in parking lots or, or other kinds of things like that. You know, can you? It's the old story back from the time when you know when Galileo licensed his telescope to the merchants of Venice. You know, to to go and figure out you know you go climb that big tower that still exists in Venice. And, um, uh, you know, you go look out at the horizon and you see who's shipping some coming in. And if you can see, you know, if you can be the first one to see whose ship is coming in, you get to make a trade based on that and, and you win. And, you know, that's, it's sort of, the world hasn't really changed a lot since the 1600s in that respect. Now it's, um, uh, you know, if you can be the first one to see with your satellite imagery to see this thing in the world then, but that's a very weird a very weird sort of reason to fly satellites. And then it's like, okay, cell phone service. Well, you know, a handheld cell phone can't really send signals back to a, an, an earth orbit distance uh, satellite. So you're dealing with base stations, but then you think about 5G, which has base stations all over the place. And, um, you know, so it's, it's a complicated story of technology. I mean, I think a lot of people are betting on, um, uh, you know, the idea of um, uh, cell phone um, kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's, um, um, some people, I mean, there's still some people talking about high altitude drones for that, which I think makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure you need satellites. Uh, maybe satellites are cheaper. I don't know. 
um, you know, uh, it's it's some. Um, I think it's sort of a, um, uh, you know, then there are things like um, uh, weird economic possibilities, like maybe, you know, maybe it makes more sense to um, be doing cloud computing, you know, in high altitude drones, which are powered by sunlight and don't need cooling and things like this or in satellites. I don't really know. Those are, those are details of, of sort of the, the economics of, of the technology that I, I, I'm not sure about. And I think that's a, um, um, now, I mean, you know, what's what's possible now that you can, you know, anybody can put one of these little, you know, nano satellite type things, you know, you can you can just put your random payload in space. It's always a little, I had a friend who was, a, uh, I would say, a little bit of an amateur hour operation in terms of his satellite activities, who uh, had a small satellite, and they lost the satellite. And it's like, well, that can happen. Um, and, you know, it, it's like, but you know, sort of anybody can put a satellite up, there's a, a tiny payload up at this point. And what are you going to do with it? I don't think anybody particularly knows. I mean, I think that the you know what are the killer apps for space going to be? I think that um, uh, you know I I don't know whether you know is tourism going to be big? It may depend on details. I mean, if if you know if uh, you know if if some rocket that's flying a bunch of tourists blows up at the you know people may say eh, I don't know whether I want to really do this. Um, if that doesn't happen, if the first, you know, uh, 300 tourist trips go just hunky-dory, it might be a different story. And, you know, a lot of details can matter in that regard. So I'm, I don't know what, um, uh, I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, I, I think, um, uh, you know, another thing to say, when I was a kid in the 1960s, you know, the space program was really big and, and I was sort of the first thing that got me interested in, in technology and science and so on was the space program. And it's like, you know, I, I, I might have, you know, I, if you'd asked me, what are you going to be when you're grown up, when I was probably nine years old, I probably would have said a spacecraft designer. Okay. And, um, you know, thank goodness I didn't do that, because that that business has, you know, uh, it's another, you know, 50 years later. And finally, we're at the point where where things are really hopping in that area. Um, so, you know, that, that's a it's, it's, um, uh, it's complicated. And if you say the thing I really want to do, you know, I certainly knew many people over, over the course of, of years who said, I really want to be an astronaut. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's a limited number of slots for that. It's, but, but, you know, maybe coming going forward, there are about to be tons of slots for that. Uh, whether it will be the, you know, the, the kind of, um, uh, whether, you know, whether it will be the thing you think it's going to be. I mean, I've always, the astronauts I know that the thing that's most notable about them is their kind of, that knowing enough about a lot of different things and being able to kind of um, uh, sort of rapidly and, and effectively switch into different kinds of things and just, you know, get those things done. But I think, you know, in the end, it's, I think the, the sort of the, the space program added a lot of glamour to sort of the astronaut business uh, in its early days. And I'm not sure that it's a glamour business particularly. It's, it's no doubt an interesting business but it's not sort of the it's not the rock star business that I think um, it was uh, it was at one time uh, you know supposed to be. But but I, I you know so I'm I think it's like there are probably some really good ideas to have about space and they're beginning to be accessible. It's beginning to be the case that sort of your average startup can fly something in space. Um, and now the question is just what are you going to fly and how are you going to make it useful? And um, interesting questions. That's it. It's a question from Akash. Uh, I'm nearly at the end here, but but um, 
um, how do you make somebody fund a company that's just at the idea stage? It's a tough business. I mean, you have to have a really good idea and you have to have a person for whom it resonates for one reason or another, and it's pretty random. Um, and I think that um, uh, really, probably the answer is uh, find somebody who has a personal belief in you, either because they've known you for years or, or some other reason, and that's the most plausible possibility because if it's just an idea, unless it's an idea that is sort of so, it's very rare that there's an idea where you, you tell that idea to somebody and somebody just says, oh my gosh, that idea is so fantastic. I know it's gonna take, take everybody to the moon, so to speak. That's really rare. And the person you tell that to has to be already very primed for that idea. And so you kind of have to have an idea that isn't just like, well, everybody's had that idea. It's all a question of just executing uh, versus that idea is so far out there that nobody can understand what the heck you're talking about. So you kind of have to be talking to somebody who's primed for that idea if you're going to sell your idea on the basis of the idea itself. And so that kind of makes it, you're selling it on the basis of you. And so, you know, I think that the uh, that, that's the most realistic possibility. You have somebody who's known you for years and they've seen you do all these things and you've done amazing stuff. And they're like, now you have an idea. And the person can say, look, I'm going to bet on this person. It's a good bet because this person's been doing, you know, I've seen all the amazing things this person's already done. I think that's that's kind of the path for that. I think that the the raw, let me tell you an idea, as I say, unless you find a person who's, who's incredibly primed for that idea, it's not going to work. Um, or, you know, or they're just going to say, well, it's an idea that everybody has, so I don't really care. Let's see. There's a question here from Pakinji. Let's see, I've heard Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley investors' opinion that the best businesses begin operations in areas in which they're the only ones, but with a horizon of big growth. Uh, do you think math is in this horizon of growth or is it committed to a limit that, well, I think, you know, at the time when we started doing mathematical computation, when I started doing this 40 years ago, um, you know, there was a, uh, it was a, it was sort of a, there were existing things, but it was a, it was a pretty wide open field. I would say at this point, you know, I'd like to think that, um, you know, the things we've built have kind of made a, a, a pretty, um, uh, you know, a pretty big tower in that area. Um, you know, is it, is it an area that has room for growth? Yes, it, I mean, math as such has room for growth. It's not the main area. You know, I would say that's a, that's a tiny fraction of what we as a company concentrate on. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a good core piece of the business, but it's not the main area of growth or, or interest. Um, I think that, that, you know, it's wonderful, but it's not the main thing that we're, that we're building with, with Wolf and Language and so on. Um, but I would say that the, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, you'll find... And I have many friends who are Silicon Valley venture capitalists. So I'll, but, but I will say, you'll find a venture capitalist who will tell you everything and the reverse. And sometimes it's the same person. So they'll say, you should be the one company that's doing this to, you don't want to be the one company that's doing this. There has to be a whole gaggle of companies that are doing this. I'll tell you an example of the one company and how that can go bad. So when the iPad was first coming out, uh, some people at my company uh, uh, were um, 
you know, really figuring out how to do interesting, innovative things on the iPad. So we built very nice stuff. And um, when the iPad came out, I said, we really should do a, have a company that is, um, uh, you know, uh, producing content that is unique to sort of the iPad world, you know, highly interactive eBooks and so on. So we had a company called TouchPress that did that. And one of the things that went wrong and things did go wrong there, I can tell that story sometime. The, um, uh, it, one of the principal things that went wrong was we were one of a kind. There wasn't, you know, we had thought that there would be a whole gaggle of companies producing highly sophisticated interactive eBooks. And there would be a whole ecosystem with reviewers and distributors and this and that and the other. You know, a bit like how over time there have been, you know, they've become, you know, all kinds of elaborate mechanisms for podcasts and things like that. That there would be a mechanism, a sort of a track, a channel for highly interactive ebooks. It never developed. And we were kind of one, we were sort of the leading company in a, in a, in a market of, of one or two. And, um, and that was, that's a type of market where there can be as many entrants as you imagine. It's not a market where, you know, there's never going to be just sort of one publishing company for books, for example. It's just not the nature of that because of the way that that, the economics of that work. And so, but that was a case where I wish there had been more entrants in that market because the cost of doing things, if you're the only entrant, there's no ecosystem. You know, if you're like promoting it to people, it's like you have to build your whole, you know, the whole stack of promotion mechanisms. Whereas if there's an ecosystem and there's, you know, app reviews and this, that, and the other that work on that area, you don't have to build that. So, you know, sometimes it's better to be the one company and say, we are the, the, the one and only company that does this. And we've got this sort of highly defensible, valuable tower that we're building. And sometimes being the one company in this barren landscape it's like, then you have to build everything for yourself and that's not a good situation to be in. And so I would say that there's no, you know, there's no one right answer and it's, it's sometimes hard to figure out. Um, you know, sometimes it's like, there's going to be a lot of flowers growing in this, in this field. And then it's like, oh, there's so many flowers that it's gonna cut off my sunlight and I'm not gonna be able to get anywhere. Or are there, you know, so few flowers that nobody's gonna know when they see this one flower growing in the middle of the field, it's like, oh, what is that thing? We don't understand what that is. It must be an alien species type thing. Um, and it's so, you know, I think you have to kind of, um, uh, it's, it's, it's tricky to see between those things. Um, there's a question here, and this is the, the last one I'm going to address right now about um, computational contracts. And um, uh, no, actually we've had a group that continues to work on computational contracts, uh, Wolf and Blockchain Labs. Um, What's happened with computational contracts is we've been slowly building out our sort of Wolfram language stack. We've also been building out the autonomous execution side of computational contracts. It's really a market-driven thing because uh, you know there's the smart contract idea very tied into cryptocurrencies and blockchains, and there's the more general computational contract idea. And I would say that what's happened there is a lot of, well, I would say companies and countries um, and so on, have been interested in computational contracts. We've interacted with lots of these places. Um, I would say we've done modest projects with them. Uh, you know, it hasn't yet sort of a, a major sort of direction for business, but I think it's a super interesting thing. And I think that um, uh, it's, it's important for the future. Um, and uh, uh, it's, um, it's something where uh, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a huge industry one day, 
And, you know, we figured out, I figured out a certain amount about what the sort of the contours of that industry are going to look like, how the legal industry plugs into it, you know, how lawyers start writing code and how there's reusability of, of, of pieces of code and how that works with the whole sort of IP of, of that kind of thing, how you start having different kinds of autonomous execution providers for computational contracts, um, how you have validation of the incoming data for computational contracts. There's a whole bunch of components of the business that have to be built there. And I think um, um, it's, uh, um, uh, so, so anyway, that, that, that's a, um, um, uh, there's, there's lots of activity there, although I think the world isn't completely ready for it yet. So more to be seen in the future. And I'm being reminded that I'm 15 minutes late for uh, something that is, uh, I'm supposed to do for my day job. So I have to sign off here. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll be doing, let's see, this time next week will be a um, history of science and technology. And then the following week will be a, another iteration of uh, this live stream. So thanks for joining us. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.